0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by George Pilling, Visalia, California, www.storysales.com. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Part 3 at Melchester, Chapter 6. Meanwhile, a middle-aged man was dreaming a dream of great beauty concerning the writer of the above letter. He was Richard Phillotson, who had recently removed from the mixed village school at Lumsden near Christminster to undertake a large boys' school in his native town of Shaston, which stood on a hill sixty miles to the southwest as the crow flies. A glance at the place and its accessories was almost enough to reveal that the schoolmaster's plans and dreams so long indulged in had been abandoned for some new dream which neither the church nor literature had in common. Essentially an unpractical man, he was now bent on making and saving money for a practical purpose, that of keeping a wife, who, if she chose, might conduct one of the girls' schools adjoining his own, for which purpose he had advised her to go into training, since she would not marry him off hand. About the time that Jude was removing from Marygreen to Melchester and entering on adventures at the latter place with Sue, the schoolmaster was settling down in the new schoolhouse at Cheston. All the furniture being fixed, the bookshelves, and the nails driven, he had begun to sit in his parlor during the dark winter nights and reattempt some of his old studies, one branch of which had included Roman Britannic antiquities. An unremunerative labor for a national schoolmaster, but a subject that after his abandonment of the university scheme, had interested him as being a comparatively unworked mind, practicable to those who, like himself, had lived in lonely spots where these remains were abundant, and were seen to compel inferences in startling contrast to accepted views on the civilization of that time. A resumption of this investigation was the outward and apparent hobby of Phillotson at present his ostensible reason for going alone into fields where causeways, dikes, and tumuli abounded, or shutting himself up in his house with a few urns, tiles, and mosaics he had collected, instead of calling round upon his new neighbors, who for their part had showed themselves willing enough to be friendly with him. But it was not the real or the whole reason after all. Thus, on a particular evening in the month, when it had grown quite late, to near midnight indeed, and the light of his lamp, Shining from his window at a salient angle of the hilltop town, over infinite miles of valley westward, announced as by words a place and person given over to study. He was not exactly studying. The interior of the room, the books, the furniture, the schoolmaster's loose coat, his attitude at the table, even the flickering of the fire, bespoke the same dignified tale of undistracted research, more than creditable to a man who had had no advantages beyond those of his own making. And yet the tale, true enough till latterly, was not true now. What he was regarding was not history. They were historic notes, written in a bold, womanly hand at his dictation some months before, and it was the clerical rendering of word after word that absorbed him. He presently took from a drawer a carefully tied bundle of letters, few, very few as correspondence counts nowadays, Each was in its envelope, just as it had arrived, and the handwriting was of the same womanly character as the historic notes. He unfolded them one by one and read them amusingly. At first sight, there seemed in these small documents to be absolutely nothing to muse over. They were straightforward frank letters, signed Sue B., just such ones as would be written during short absences, with no other thought than their speedy destruction, and chiefly concerning books and reading, and other experiences of a training school, forgotten doubtless by the writer with the passing of the day of their inditing. In one of them, quite a recent note, the young woman said that she had received his considerate letter, and that it was honorable and generous of him to say he would not come to see her oftener than she desired. The school being such an awkward place for callers, and because of her strong wish that her engagement to him should not be known, which it would infallibly be if he visited her often. Over these phrases the schoolmaster poured, what precise shade of satisfaction was to be gathered from a woman's gratitude that the man who loved her had not been often to see her. The problem occupied him, distracted him. He opened another drawer and found therein an envelope, from which he drew a photograph of Sue as a child long before he had known her, standing under trellis work with a little basket in her hand. There was another of her as a young woman, her dark eyes and hair making a very distinct attractive picture of her, which just disclosed to the thoughtfulness that lay behind her lighter moods. It was a duplicate of the one she had given Jude, and would have given to any man. Phillotson brought it halfway to his lips, but withdrew it in doubt at her perplexing phrases, ultimately kissing the dead pasteboard with all the passionateness and more than all the devotion of a young man of eighteen. The schoolmaster's was an unhealthy-looking, old-fashioned face, rendered more old-fashioned by his style of shaving. A certain gentlemanliness had been imparted to it by nature, suggesting an inherent wish to do rightly by all. His speech was a little slow, but his tones were sincere enough to make his hesitation no defect. His graying hair was curly and radiated from a point in the middle of his crown, there were four lines across his forehead, and he only wore spectacles when reading at night. It was almost certainly a renunciation forced upon him by his academic purpose rather than a distaste for women, which had hitherto kept him from closing with one of the sex in matrimony. Such silent proceedings as those of this evening were repeated many and oft times when he was not under the eye of the boys, whose quick and penetrating regard would frequently become almost intolerable to the self-conscious master in his present anxious care for Sue, making him, in the gray hours of morning, dread to meet anew the gimlet glances, lest they should read what the dream within him was. He had honorably acquiesced in Sue's announced wish that he was not often to visit her at the training school, but at length, his patience being sorely tried, he set out one Saturday afternoon to pay her an unexpected call. There, the news of her departure, expulsion as it might almost have been considered, was flashed upon him without warning or mitigation as he stood at the door expecting in a few minutes to behold her face, and when he turned away he could hardly see the road before him. Sue had, in fact, never written a line to her suitor on the subject, though it was fourteen days old. A short reflection told him that this proved nothing, a natural delicacy being as ample a reason for silence as any degree of blameworthiness. They had informed him at the school where she was living, and having no immediate anxiety about her comfort, his thoughts took the direction of a burning indignation against the training school committee. In his bewilderment, Phillotson entered the adjacent cathedral, just now in a direly dismantled state by reason of the repairs. He sat down on a block of freestone, regardless of the dusty imprint it made on his breeches, and his listless eyes following the movements of the workmen, he presently became aware that the reputed culprit, Sue's lover Jude, was one amongst them. Jude had never spoken to his former hero since the meeting by the model of Jerusalem. Having inadvertently witnessed Phillotson's tentative courtship of Sue in the lane, there had grown up in the younger man's mind a curious dislike to think of the elder, to meet him, to communicate in any way with him, and since Phillotson's success in obtaining at least her promise had become known to Jude, he had frankly recognized that he did not wish to see or hear of his senior any more, learn anything of his pursuits, or even imagine again what excellencies might appertain to his character. On this very day of the schoolmaster's visit, Jude was expecting Sue, as she had promised, and when therefore he saw the schoolmaster in the nave of the building, saw moreover that he was coming to speak to him, he felt no little embarrassment, which Phillotson's own embarrassment prevented his observing. Jude joined him, and they both withdrew from the other workmen to the spot where Phillotson had been sitting. Jude offered him a piece of sackcloth, for a cushion, and told him it was dangerous to sit on the bare block. Yes, yes, said Phillotson abstractedly as he reseated himself, his eyes resting on the ground as if he were trying to remember where he was. I won't keep you long. It was merely that I have heard that you have seen my little friend Sue recently. It occurred to me to speak to you on that account. I I merely want to ask about her. I think I know that. Jude hurriedly said, about her escaping from the training school and her coming to me? Yes. Well, Jude for a moment felt an unprincipled and fiendish wish to annihilate his rival at all cost. By the exercise of that treachery which love for the same woman renders possible to men the most honorable in every other relation of life, he could send off Phillotson in agony and defeat by saying that the scandal was true and that Suet irretrievably committed herself with him but his action did not respond for a moment to his animal instinct, and what he said was, "'I am glad of your kindness in coming to talk plainly to me about it. You know what they say, that I ought to marry her.' "'What?' "'And I wish with all my soul I could.' Phillotson trembled, and his naturally pale face acquired a corpse-like sharpness in its lines. "'I had no idea that it was of this nature. God forbid!' "'No, no,' said Jude, aghast. "'I thought you understood.' I mean that were I in a position to marry her or someone and settle down, instead of living in lodgings here and there, I should be glad. What he had really meant was simply that he loved her. But since this painful matter has been opened up, what really happened? Asked Phillotson with the firmness of a man who felt that a sharp smart now was better than a long agony of suspense hereafter. Cases arise, and this is one where even ungenerous questions must be put, to make false assumptions impossible, and to kill scandal. Jude explained readily, giving the whole series of adventures, including the night at the shepherds, her wet arrival at his lodging, her indisposition from her immersion, their vigil of discussion, and his seeing her off the next morning. Well now, said Phillotson at the conclusion, I take it as your final word, and I know I can believe you, that the suspicion which led to her rustication is an absolutely baseless one. It is, said Jude solemnly, absolutely, so help me God. The schoolmaster rose. Each of the twain felt that the interview could not comfortably merge in a friendly discussion of their recent experiences after the manner of friends, and when Jude had taken him round and shown him some features of the renovation which the old cathedral was undergoing, Phillotson bade the young man good day and went away. This visit took place about eleven o'clock in the morning, but no Sue appeared, When Jude went to his dinner at one, he saw his beloved ahead of him in the street, looking up from the north gate, walking as if no way looking for him. Speedily overtaking her, he remarked that he had asked her to come to him at the cathedral, and she had promised. "'I have been to get my things from the college,' she said, an observation which he was expected to take as an answer, though it was not one. Finding her to be in this evasive mood, he felt inclined to give her the information so long withheld. "'You have not seen Mr. Phillipson today?' he ventured to inquire. I have not, but I am not going to be cross-examined about him, and if you ask anything more, I won't answer. It is very odd that, he stopped, regarding her. What? That you are often not so nice in your real presence as you are in your letters. Does it really seem so to you? said she, smiling with quick curiosity. Well, that's strange, but I feel just the same about you, Jude. When you are gone away, I seem such a cold-hearted, As she knew his sentiment towards her, Jude saw that they were getting upon dangerous ground. It was now, he thought, that he must speak as an honest man. But he did not speak, and she continued. It was that which made me write and say, I didn't mind your loving me if you wanted too much. The exultation he might have felt at what that implied or seemed to imply was nullified by his intention, and he rested rigid till he began. I have never told you. Yes, you have, murmured she. I mean, I have never told you my history, all of it. But I guess it, I know, nearly. Jude looked up. Could she possibly know of that morning performance of his with Arabella, which in a few months had ceased to be a marriage more completely than by death? He saw that she did not. I can't quite tell you here in the street, he went on with a gloomy tongue, and you had better not come to my lodgings. Let us go in here. The building by which they stood was the market house. It was the only place available, and they entered, the market being over, and the stalls and areas empty. He would have preferred a more congenial spot, but, as usually happens, in place of a romantic field or solemn aisle for his tale, it was told while they walked up and down over a floor littered with rotten cabbage leaves, and amid all the usual squalors of decayed vegetable matter and unsaleable refuse. He began and finished his brief narrative, which merely led up to the information that he had married a wife some years earlier, and that his wife was living still. Almost before her countenance had time to change, she hurried out the words. Why didn't you tell me before? I couldn't. It seemed so cruel to tell it. To yourself, Jude. So it was better to be cruel to me? No, dear darling, cried Jude passionately. He tried to take her hand, but she withdrew it. Their old relations of confidence seemed suddenly to have ended, and the antagonisms of sex to sex were left without any counterpoising predilections. She was his comrade, friend, unconscious sweetheart no longer, and her eyes regarded him in a strange silence. I was ashamed of the episode in my life which brought about the marriage, he continued. I can't explain it precisely now. I could have done it if you had taken it differently. But how can I, she burst out. Here I have been saying or writing that, that you might love me or something of the sort just out of charity and all the time... Oh, Oh, it is perfectly damnable how things are, she said, stamping her foot in a nervous quiver. You take me wrong, Sue. I never thought you cared for me at all till quite lately, so I felt it did not matter. Do you care for me, Sue? You know how I mean. I don't like out of charity at all. It was a question to which, in the circumstances, Sue did not choose to answer. Uh, I suppose she, your wife, is a very pretty woman, even if she's wicked, she asked quickly. She's pretty enough as far as that goes. Prettier than I am, no doubt. You are not the least alike, and I have never seen her for years. But she is sure to come back. They always do. How strange of you to stay apart from her like this, said Sue, her trembling lip and lumpy throat belying her irony. You, such a religious man, how will the demigods in your pantheon, I mean those legendary persons you call saints, intercede for you after this? Now, if I had done such a thing, it would have been different, and not remarkable, for I, at least, don't regard marriage as a sacrament. Your theories are not so advanced as your practice. Sue, you are terribly cutting when you like to be, a perfect Voltaire, but you must treat me as you will. When she saw how wretched he was, she softened, and trying to blink away her sympathetic tears, said with all the winning reproachfulness of a heart-hurt woman, Ah! You should have told me before you gave me that idea that you wanted to be allowed to love me. I had no feeling before that moment at the railway station, except for once Sue was as miserable as he in her attempts to keep herself free from emotion and her less than half success. Don't cry, dear, he implored. I am not crying because I mean to love you, but because of your want of confidence.' They were quite screened from the market square without, and he could not help putting out his arm towards her waist. His momentary desire was the means of her rallying. No, no, she said, drawing back stringently and wiping her eyes. Of course not. It would be hypocrisy to pretend that it would be meant as from my cousin, and it can't be in any other way. They moved a dozen paces, and she showed herself recovered. It was distracting to Jude, and his heart would have ached less had she appeared anyhow but as she did appear, essentially large-minded and generous on reflection, despite a previous exercise of those narrow womanly humors on impulse that were necessary to give her sex. I don't blame you for what you couldn't help, she said, smiling. How should I be so foolish? I do blame you a little bit for not telling me before, but, after all, it doesn't matter. We should have had to keep apart, you see, even if this had not been in your life. "'No, we shouldn't, Sue. This is the only obstacle.' "'You forget that I must have loved you and wanted to be your wife, even if there had been no obstacle,' said Sue with a gentle seriousness which did not reveal her mind. "'And then we are cousins, and it is bad for cousins to marry, and and I am engaged to someone else. As to our going on together as we were going, in a sort of friendly way, the people round us would have made it unable to continue. Their views of the relationships of man and woman are limited.' as is proved by their expelling me from the school. Their philosophy only recognized relations based on animal desire. The wide field of strong attachment where desire plays at least only a secondary part is ignored by them. The part of, who is it, Venus Urania? Her being able to talk learnedly showed that she was mistress of herself again, and before they had parted she had almost regained her vivacious glance, her reciprocity of tone, her gay manner, and her second-thought attitude of critical largeness towards others of her age and sex. He could speak more freely now. There were several reasons against my telling you rashly. One was what I have said. Another, that it was always impressed upon me that I ought not to marry, that I belonged to an odd and peculiar family, the wrong breed for marriage. Ah, who used to say that to you? My great-aunt. She said it always ended badly with us follies. That's strange. (laughs) My father used to say the same to me. They stood possessed by the same thought, ugly enough even as an assumption, that a union between them, had such been possible, would have meant a terrible intensification of unfitness. Two bitters in one dish. Oh, but there can't be anything in it, she said with nervous lightness. Our families have been unlucky of late years in choosing mates, that's all and they pretended to persuade themselves that all that had happened was of no consequence and that they could still be cousins and friends and warm correspondents and have happy genial times when they met even if they met less frequently than before their parting was in good friendship and yet jude's last look into her eyes was tinged with inquiry for he felt that he did not even now quite know her mind end of part 3 chapter 6